Hey, boys and girls, this is Don, the Great Southern Brain Fart. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Blow and Wind with the Great Southern Brain Fart podcast. This podcast has been an absolute blast for me, and I hope you all have been enjoying it as well. Do you have a favorite episode? Do you have a favorite couple of episodes? Hell, do you love them all? The best way you can let me know is by leaving a comment or a review over at iTunes or on whatever platform you are listening to the podcast on. I'd really love to hear from you. Be sure to check out the website at www.brainfartinterviews.com and check in with me. This is something I really want to see grow and I want this to become your podcast as much as it is mine. So thanks again for all your support. Thanks again for listening and please spread the word. Well, hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to episode 18 of Blow and Win with the Great Southern Brain Fart. For nearly three decades, Thomas O'Keefe was known in the North Carolina Triangle area as the basis for punk rock legend's anti-scene. When Thomas decided to put the bass down for just a little bit, his life took him in a totally different direction. Currently out on the road as the tour manager for Weezer, Thomas also rode along with the band Train on their rise to stardom, helping to guide their way. But before any of that, Thomas cut his teeth working as tour manager with one of the most impossible bands on the planet to work with, Whiskey Town. In 2018, Thomas released his book, Waiting to Derail, Ryan Adams and Whiskey Town, Alt Country's Brilliant Wreck, which documented his long, tumultuous journey as the road manager and even at times babysitter for Alt Country darling Ryan Adams. So without further ado, let's get to it and welcome Thomas to Blow and Wind with the Great Southern Brain Fart. Thomas, welcome to Blow and Win with the Great Southern Brain Fart. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Usually, usually people. Yeah, there's always a pause, and there's either like a "that's fucking cool" or that's like a um, "okay." <laughs> you know, what did so. I sign up for? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, um, well. First off, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk, man. I know you are a busy guy. Yeah, we're in the middle of a tour right now, but yeah, I'm happy to do it. Well, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you have been extremely busy on the on the press circuit, though, especially with the uh, the release of the book, uh, the Whiskey Town book, the Waiting to Derail. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's true. Yeah, it just came out a few weeks ago. It's still not out in Europe yet, but it's out in the U.S. I read it in two days. Are you tired of talking about it yet? <laughs> No, but you know what, though? It's funny is that's what everybody is saying. Everyone is saying like, oh, I read it in one day. I read it in two days. And I just don't I don't know if that's good or not. I guess it is if it's so the book is so quick that you just power through it. But um, the the I read it in a day or two is a very common uh, response so far. Look, it's like I was telling somebody the other day. I said, "I so I just I just read your book in two days." I, uh, so I'm a I, I'm a music biography, autobiography like freak. That's all I read. I don't read fiction. Right. I, all I read is music biographies and autobiographies. I read I read yours in two days. I read Jonathan Cain's book in three days. Um, it took me 
two months to read Keith Richards' book. Yeah, it's agonizing. You know? I try I read it too, and I still wasn't sure if I remember what. Cause I felt like he was just talking to you as if you knew who that guy, that fisherman guy, was in Monte Carlo in '72, right. and you're like, "Oh, who is this guy he's talking about?" Let, let me tell you what I made it halfway through Neil Young's uh, uh, waging was it waging heavy peace or whatever, and. I, I, I liked him less than I did when I started the book. So like, I couldn't even finish the book because I was just you know, like, you're such uh, an asshole, dude. There's a few of them. <laughs> you know what book I couldn't read? And I hate to talk. I'm not talking shit because I like this person as an artist. No, this is great. I want to hear. Yeah. You know what book I couldn't read was the Steven Tyler <gasps> autobiography. Oh, It was my. like, it hurt my brain. He was like, skibbity, skabbity, doobity, hobbity, yabbity, doobity. It's like he was talking and somebody just wrote it all down so i actually told i, I just friend, walked away from it i had to put it down and i think i gave it to somebody you and i should probably toast beers over that one because i swear to god when i got that book and i read it i was like the biggest problem with this book is that it reads like how he talks and i can't exactly stand yeah it. And, and he's you don't even know what he's saying or what he's talking about like a writer didn't write it with him somebody recorded it and and just some college student you know dicta- he dictated it to somebody and they just wrote it down so you know who did that so lawn friend who I don't know, I don't know who that so is. So he he was the like the editor for Rip magazine back in the day, mm-hmm. and um he was on Headbangers Ball like he used to have a little like a little spot on head like basically like sat like a with Steven Tyler for like months with a recorder and just so, uh, Mike, recorded him uh, talking. God, <laughs> that's so, painful did he, to me. Did he ever call him back at like eleven o'clock at night and say, you know, I'm listening to these tapes and on chapter seven do. You, you say skibbity hobbity doobity bobbity or skibbity hobbity doobity robbity. I don't know which I'm trying to get it right. Like I just can't I just my brain was hurting when I was trying to read that book. Like I tried to read Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. I think that book would be easier to read than, than the Steven Tyler book. The the funny thing is the only book that it was to me that was ever written in like an artist's voice as far as like a music like autobiography guess was David Lee Roth's crazy from the heat because right. I could listen to David Lee Roth talk all fucking day. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? love, and I love the part <laughs> in that book where he said, I'm not going to talk about all the girls I banged. Cause you know, I did. <laughs> I thought that was so great. He's like America's greatest entertainer. You know, you know, my favorite part of that whole book in general was, uh, was, was that, you know, he really, he really let himself, become you know transparent you know Mm -hmm. and like that part how he talked about like when he would get off tour you know and he'd have this inflated ego and then he would go volunteer out in the fucking like jungles and help like right pull boats that were stranded in the marsh and then like fly home and then two days later be on the road you know headlining you know arenas Yeah, they were amazing. I'm old enough, thankfully, that I got to see them four times in the old days with him. Like, and they were, I saw them three times in 1982, and I saw them once in 1984. I mean, they just owned the heart of America. You know, that band really just, they, they really were amazing back then. 
It's really funny because I because I was let's see I mean I was I was old enough to have seen him on the '84 tour. Didn't see them though, but I did see pretty much every David Lee Roth solo tour up until like the you know the first three solo albums. And, and those were just those were just the next Van Halen records. And let me tell you, I t- I saw Van Halen like parallel to those david lee roth shows and it was like no contest man yeah, it was no contest. <laughs> i was just like i don't care who you are dude you're sammy hagar <laughs> you know right. like you are not david lee roth dude. i mean it makes he makes sense and you know sammy's book if you want some drunken eddie van halen stories i mean that sammy book is that was a, amazing that was yeah. a great read and matter of fact i'm a huge deadhead so i love the story about bob weir's car going off the edge of the cliff and then bob weir just getting out and leaving it there (laughs) my favorite story in the sammy book is when he is hanging out where alex van halen is playing drums and his drum stool is in a giant bucket full of ice with 24 (laughs) schlitz malt liquors and he's drinking them and peeing in the same cooler the whole show i mean that's amazing I mean, you don't get much. De- you don't get much more debaucherous than that, you know. <laughs> There's an amazing story that I heard that's not in any book. That they said that Eddie Van Halen was uh, when he was breaking up with Valerie Bertinelli. Uh, some crew guys in L.A. told me the story. Said that he would, she wouldn't let him drink in her house, you know, because the fifty-one. 51- studio was a garage at her house basically right and right. he lived eddie van halen lived at valerie bertinelli's house and he she wouldn't let him drink at the house anymore so rather than go to a bar like you or i might do he would get on like a honda 50 boat <laughs> scooter with no helmet and no license plate and ride down the bottom of the hill and go to the Ralph's right across from the Sportsman's Lodge and buy a 12-pack of Schlitz Malt Liquor and sit out at the loading dock and drink it. And the dudes, the dudes at the, like, the dudes in the produce department of the department of Ralph's is a grocery store in L.A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would, um, they go, hey man, Eddie Van Halen's out at the loading dock. Let's go smoke some cigarettes with him. And he would just sit out there and get drunk by himself. And then he would uh, get on his Honda 50 scooter and ride back up the hill to his house. That's hilarious. <laughs> Boy, talk about the that's almost that, that's about like you know I you know I, I live in Atlanta and like I remember back in the day when Collective Soul had just broken big, seeing those guys right. drinking out in the parking lot of a Kroger, and just right. thinking like fucking losers, you know? Right? I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, they all you know. I mean, in that Sammy book, you know, he talks about how you know when he gets the call to be in Van Halen, like he. He's a foodie and he's collecting wine and he's driving a Ferrari and he's like doing all these like rich guy hobbies. And then he goes to Eddie Van Halen's house and he goes, are you hungry? And he like microwaves a hot dog and washes it down with a 18 ounce Schlitz malt liquor and goes, all right, let's get back to work. It's like Eddie Van Halen's like the like the the wealthiest homeless guy you know, you know. Well, see, here's what the problem though. I think that we all equate wealth with intelligence, right? And it, they don't always go hand in hand. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
I know. Listen, I know a rock star who will remain nameless, and he's not the ones I'm traveling with now from a long time ago. Okay. I know a guy. I know a guy who has baloney in a subsea refrigerator. Now, and he's probably the only <laughs> dude in the world that has baloney in a subsea refrigerator. That is that that is that is fantastic, and, and the sad thing about it is, is I can probably think of like at least five that would one of them would probably be Tommy Lee, but <laughs> yeah, it could be. Bro. Yeah, I did a whole tour with him. I have a hundred great stories about him. he's he's exactly the dude that you think he is. That is so. This is amazing because you know. So, um, so like I said, I live in Atlanta, but I moved to Concord, North Carolina, in '99. Mm-hmm. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and we had moved there with the expectation of being there for a year because she wanted to do AmeriCorps, and we ended up staying for about four four years. And of course, when I first moved to North Carolina, coming from Atlanta. You know, it's so weird how, you know, it's like once you get into North Carolina, you get that that kind of that triangle like, you know, you know, like, you know, you know, the Charlotte, the Raleigh, the Chapel Hill, Durham, all the all that that kind of scene, you know what I mean? And it was so far removed from the Atlanta scene. But then when we moved to North Carolina, I just remember like like the four bands that I heard was like. Like everyone was like, dude, Antecene, Whiskey Town, Two Dollar Pistols, and Trailer Bride. Those were like the four bands that everyone was like, dude, have you heard those? And I was like, I've never right. heard any of these fucking bands, you know? And so, like, the fact that they were just kind of like staples of North Carolina music. Um, how did you go from being that to managing, like, how did you go from being the bass player? in Antecene to managing an alt country band <laughs> like well, that, that had to I be mean, a I shock in the agree. system I mean you know? I think there was I think there was a major uh, to speak what you're talking about I think there was a major uh, competition between the Charlotte scene and the Triangle Chapel Hill Raleigh uh, Durham scene. I still think that exists today. I mean I I was a witness many- to it when we moved to to Chapel Hill. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole snobbery of people. And listen, I love Raleigh. I was lived there for 18 years. Uh, It's one. It's a great place. I have nothing against it. But there's definitely a snobbery with, oh, they're from Charlotte. You know, like Charlotte are all rednecks, hillbillies. And we're smart because Carolina Duke and NC State are here, you know. So and there was there was definitely a snobbery between the bands like and quite honestly, you know, anti-scene has been around for 35 years. We're doing the 35th anniversary show in October in Charlotte. And we always did terrible in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill when we would play there. We could play in Munich and have more people show up in Munich than we would in Raleigh. (laughs) You know, it's true. And also, I don't think I think some of the bands from. The triangle, you know, in those days, they just they didn't do they still don't do that well in Charlotte. So there's definitely this us against them sort of vibe. And I think even though I've lived in both towns, I have to believe that a lot of it stems from the uh snob the indie rock snobbery of Chapel Hill and Raleigh Durham. 
Oh gosh, so. I I I, pl- I played I played in an, in, in a uh, roots rock band uh, called Mystery Road when I lived in Chapel Hill from uh, 2007 to 2009, and you know we were really heavily influ- influenced by you know that kind. You know, I mean, I, at that point, I'd been playing folk music for 20 years as a solo artist. You know, so like you know we were I was super influenced by you know Whiskey Town and Driving and Crying and bands like that. You know, mm-hmm. and right. so of course playing that kind of music though in chapel hill like i i assumed like oh man like they're gonna fucking love us but they were like you're just not too indie you're not indie enough and one of them even t- said you guys sound too georgia <laughs> right yeah they could be really snobs but i mean to answer your question though what happened was i played in an- i played in anti-scene i was at the very first show 35 years ago this fall and i was in the band uh i was i know i played the five-year anniversary show so i joined the band over 30 years ago and Mm -hmm. i was in until 95 and i quit and i started tour managing a band called luster which was essentially a spinoff band from anti-scene right and uh a band that i was almost the bass player of but thank goodness i ended up being their tour manager instead because here i am 22 years later i still have a job but um so i ended up tour managing luster and of course they were one of the 90s the second wave of grunge rock when the labels just ran around and signed every alternative rock band they could find no matter how long they had been around so luster inevitably failed and sold hardly any records at all and uh we went to so then i started working with looking for another job you know and your second job's the hard one to find so i tour managed one of my, one of the my two favorite bands i ever worked with weezer being one of them and degeneration being the other and i tour managed them in uh early 97 mm-hmm. and then i got a call out of nowhere which is really the beginning of the book when i got a call from chris roll dan to uh wanted me to tour manage whiskey town that i had heard of but i did not know anything about them other than the fact that i had heard of them and i knew they were from raleigh Mm -hmm. and quite honestly the real reason that i got the call is because i lived in raleigh had they were looked the management company was based in austin texas right the the band was in raleigh they had no adult on the ground that could that could take that could supervise this thing and quite honestly if i had lived in greensboro or charlotte i would have never you'd be talking to someone else right now right well so the the, the, not to get too deep into the book because obviously there's i'm sure there's people out there that haven't read it though but one of the things i found fascinating is because you know kind of like yourself you know i'm a musician but i'm also a writer um obviously i do a podcast i do pr work you know so i'm just a very I'm very fascinated with just the different facets of music in general and how business and industry and things and how you can wear the different hats and whatnot. But being a musician and looking and from the outside in at a band like Whiskey Town, um, I feel like in the book you hinted at it a little bit, but at any point, did it just like blow your mind where you were just like, why are you guys not putting the work into the live shows and the, that you that you do with the album? Do you know what I mean? Like, of course, because yeah, I really got I that impression. That, I thought that every single day because yeah. you know this is your chance. You know they 
Th- now, when I say they, I don't. I shouldn't say they as in all of them because all of them didn't share in this attitude. But I would say that Ryan and Phil, the guitar player, I, I would not. I, I think Caitlin was an adult, and I think she really wanted to try hard and wanted to do well and wanted to make the shows great. But I think she was d- dramatically outvoted most of the time. But right. Phil and Ryan acted as if this record deal they had got were given and this chance they were given was something that was owed to them because we were so great that they, they had to sign us. See, and I got that impression. Watching them piss it it away and watching them have this opportunity, you know, was uh, watching them sort of waste away. The opportunity was, was a bummer of course, course because you know there were two there were two sides of this whole thing there was the <laughs> punk rock side of me loved watching ryan smash shit or ruin a show but then after he did it i was like oh shit i'm also the tour manager now i have to go try to collect the money from the bar owner who doesn't want to pay us because ryan just ruined the show <laughs> so there was a constant conflict of thomas o'keefe the tour manager versus thomas o'keefe the punk rock artist who you know i would see stuff happen and you know or thomas o'keefe the adult that uh you know where i would see something happen and i would love it for a second and then go oh i gotta go talk to that dude and try to collect the money which is not fun (laughs) but it was it was sad i you know somebody asked me the other day if they thought whiskey town was a great band and i said no they were not whiskey town was not a great band Whiskey Town was an okay band that played Ryan Adams' great songs. Uh-huh. Yeah. Whiskey Town was a Whiskey Town was a great band that had two great people in it, Ryan Adams and Caitlin Carey. The magic of those two together is what made that band. The rest of the band were all right. Some of them were good. Mike Daly was a great player. A couple of them were just barely good enough to play in the band. Right. So Whiskey Town, Whiskey Town, the band was not a great band. See, and that's so funny because in the kind of music that we play, you know, and of course I'm saying we being like, you know, yeah, because I can compare myself to Ryan, of course, no, but you know right. what I mean. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I have a, I have a band here in Atlanta that we play. You know, we're a roots rock trio. You know, we, and again, like, you know, Ryan, you know, and Ryan and Caitlin were two very huge influences of me because to me they were the two that always seemed to be the kind of heart behind the, especially in the studio and the recordings, like the, the, the ones that seemed to really kind of make it happen. And right. I never got to see Whiskey Town live. And I talked to a friend of mine who saw them live uh, twice. And I was like, so what was it like? And he was like, the first time was okay. The second time was good. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, it and- was a constant variable. <laughs> you know what I mean? I always say there was like, I'm not sure the percentages I used in the book, but I would say about about 10 to 15 percent of the time, it could be life changing, magical. Like you're seeing one of the greatest shows you'll ever see in your whole life right now. It's happening right in front of you. Mm -hmm. I would say about 60 percent of the time it was the I used to call it the Vegas show where they would just phone it in, plow through it, probably play too short and Mm -hmm. just phone it in so to speak (laughs) and then the other 15 percent was probably the punk rock i'm going to ruin the show or smash a bunch of shit or 
some something very disruptive. So right. you really never knew from night to night the 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 the, 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 the it would it would be that widely variable. So one night you might see them and they were amazing, and the next night you might see them and they were just borderline terrible and the next night you might see him and he's smashing a guitar a $3,500 guitar on stage or something ridiculous like that so you (laughs) just don't know what which show it and there's no way to tell I didn't know which show it was going to be tonight right and I should have known because I spent the whole day hanging out with him so I should be able to get some kind of idea as to the attitude and the mindset of today and see if Oh, I bet today's going to be awesome or tonight's going to be awesome. But even I had right. no idea. But it's funny because one of the things I noticed, especially in the book, is that how you talk about, you know, and and I think that it also goes back to this uh, perspective that we sometimes forget, especially when when reading the book, when I was reading it, you know, I – I hold Ryan, obviously, in high regard. I hold Caitlin in a very high regard. They're both very influential artists to me as a musician. But at the same time, I'm I'm going, oh, this dude was fucking 22 years old, though. What was I like when I was 22 years old? Like, yeah, but, I you, was can't, like, but you, know, you can't do that, though. The first Van Halen album was recorded by four dudes who were 24 years old. Right. You know, the Beatles, how old were they? What what record were they making when they were 24 years old? Mm -hmm. I was reminded the other day that Rush made moving pictures when they were in their late 20s. Angus Young was 28 when they recorded Back in Black. That's crazy. (laughs) You know? So that's not... I don't think the age thing... The reality is, if you're a genius, you're a genius. When you're a genius, they figure it... They usually... If you're going to a decent enough school, they usually figure that shit out in the first or second grade. Right. Like you're like, they know something's cooking. You yeah. Know? You're like either a genius or you're like an idiot savant. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and sometimes the both go hand in hand. But the point is, part of the main thrust of this book, I think, is not, hey, here's all the stupid shit Ryan Adams did. That's not what the book is. To me, what the book is, is it's. I knew Ryan Adams was a world-changing genius in 1997. Mm-hmm. That was 21 years ago, long before his fans came along who are seeing him now. And I'm not professing to be the only person or the first person that realized that, but I was among the first. Right. And this book is the story of the first handful of people who really realized, to God Almighty, this guy is as good as anyone. And... We're, we're trying to help him. Keep in mind, he hadn't sold any records yet. He wasn't famous yet. He wasn't who he is today. But, you know, we helped get him there a little bit. You know, right. I'm not professing. I'm not trying to take credit for where he is now because, obviously, he's worked very hard the last 20 years. But at the beginning, he was very apt to shoot himself in the foot. And we were constantly trying to fight him and get him to do the right thing so that he would become the guy he turned into. Well, I mean, it, it because it all starts somewhere, you know. That that'd be like right. kind of writing off, you know, you know, George Martin's, you know, early influence with the Beatles, or or you know, even Gene Simmons is, you know, you know, listening to Van Halen's demo. You know what I mean? Like, it's right? Like, of course. It's yeah. like you know, somebody has to help mold and shape, and that was definitely your role. And one of the things I appreciated in the book 
um, because I, I like I said I read the book and then the minute I read the book I went I went to the uh, the Ryan Adams uh, Facebook group which by the way is absolutely hysterical <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it's like it's like troll city over there but of course but um, there was actually a um, a post that was specifically about the book and one of the things I was actually quite surprised to see was that a lot of people took that I don't know how much you engage with that but they they had some really great things to say about the book you know in the sense that like you know you know some people were like oh this is no new news we all knew Ryan was an immature little shit or whatever da da da, da. but at the same time there were aspects of it where people were like wow like I feel really bad for Caitlin. <laughs> you know? right. Like like when I came when I finished that book, I think I felt worse for her than I felt for any of them because I was yeah. just like, you know, cuz she had this one great quote in the book and I wrote it down and it was um it it was uh we toured hard and played hard but didn't work hard. Yeah. And I always thought that was interesting and at any point, did Caitlin ever try to step up and take some sort of a, uh, a, a larger role in saying, hey, get your shit together? Or was she just kind of like the you, – you kind of painted her at times as the big sister who kind of just like while they all fought, she sat in the corner, read the book. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think that I think that she constantly – tried to get them to do better i think she Mm -hmm. constantly you know but she was outnumbered you know what i mean i just think that i think that she wanted to do better shows and i think mike daly who was our uh, keyboard player multi-instrumental dude right i think he he was a musician's musician he 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 was a he was more of a pro than you know i i really tried to make the point in the book that even though i was the big brother guy even though i was the guy who got hired to teach these guys i was only a year or two ahead of them right i right. was i was a moron too you know what i mean so <laughs> i was never in a million years trying to profess that i was the i knew what the hell i was doing back then i just knew what the hell i was doing a little bit more than they did but um (laughs) no i think caitlin caitlin constantly worked hard to uh to push the situation further but of course i mean she's just outnumbered i think Mm -hmm. because i really did get that kind of image you know like like you know because she was such she's such a prolific artist in her own right right that it it almost seemed painful that you know she was she was ryan's emmy lou you know what i mean of course yeah 100 percent. and there was obvious uh, obviously a connection with those two and there was obviously a love between those two that they shared that you know she was always she was pretty much the static member like she was the one that was no, always going to the, be there she, me and her and ryan were the only ones who did the whole thing right you know and so i think it was one of those things to look on how she how it went down and just to think like wow like you know what could have been um and do you think that Whiskey Town could have been? Because this is another thing that I noticed too. Is that in the closing of the book, um, I think it was I think it was John who said I can't remember. I, I should have written it down. I'm so professional. Someone said that they believed that if pneumonia had came out in '99, like it was supposed to, that there would still be a Whiskey Town. Um, 
Do you believe that, or do you? No, think- no, no, not at all. Because Ryan was already. This was a you know. There's a scene in the book where me and Ryan are in Nashville after a show late one night at a Waffle House. And right. We were hanging out, and he asked me a very direct, serious question, which was very out of character for him. And he goes, you know, he was sitting in the booth late at night, like two thirty in the morning, waiting for our eggs or whatever to come. And he said, he just looked at me and goes, "Man, what do you think's going to happen to me?" You know, being very serious. I remember that was, part. And, yeah. And so I, I feel like, you know, he and I told him, I said, you know, I feel like Whiskey Town is your first band, and I feel like, you know, it's Mud Crunch and you're Tom Petty, and I think you're going to go on to do great things and have a career probably your entire life which of course i still believe that today and his his um situation has proven me correct but um you know so i wasn't surprised by that but no i don't think for a minute that because whiskey town the band really it the whiskey town the band was the original band that i took out on the rv tour and then it turned into another band and it turned into another band it turned into another band and it was really just ryan caitlin mike daly and whoever else was in it Mm -hmm. so it was never really a band you know it was really just the three of them at that point that might have kept going but i don't know i just feel like ryan's too prolific and too He was already playing solo shows by that point, and so I don't think that – no, I don't think it would have lasted. So you guys – you and Ryan had a very tight relationship, obviously, because he felt like he could really open up to you. Um, His lack of interest in the book, of course, has been met with a lot of speculation, especially on the forums and on the Facebook groups where they were – you know, people just kind of speculate like, oh, Ryan doesn't want to relive his 20s. He want, he, he's always an artist that's looking forward, whatever. Um, obviously, I'm not asking this to like stir anything up, but was there any indication from him or, or, or why you think that he chose to not be involved with this aspect of it at all? Oh, I knew that he wasn't going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is this. Here's the real truth. About 11 years ago, there was a rock critic guy from Raleigh, North Carolina, who was kind of like a like a Ryan super fan. He really kind of worshipped everything he did and kind mm-hmm. of wrote for no depression and wrote for some wrote for some things. <laughs> he decided he was going to write a book about Whiskey Town. So he called Ryan first and said, hey, Ryan, I'm writing a book about Whiskey Town. I want to talk to you. And then Ryan, this happened in either 2007 or 2008. I can't remember. But I remember where I was when I got the call. And um, Ryan called me and goes, hey, man, this guy's writing a book. Don't talk to him. And I said, Ryan, I'm not going to talk to him. I I have no plans of talking to him because I'm going to write a book myself someday. And Ryan said, well, that's cool. I'm not afraid of your book. And I said, well, dude, you shouldn't be afraid of my book. I'm not going to, I'm not throwing you under the bus, but this is an important story. I mean, the truth is I saw whiskey town more times than any other person on the planet earth. Mm -hmm. No one else can say that. I saw them 174 times. You're lucky if you meet somebody that saw them five or 10 times. Exactly. Right. So, 
I so I'm the person to tell this story because I'm the person who lived it and I'm the person that has a flawless memory and I remembered it all, you know. So so that's it. So what happened was Ryan called everybody and said, Don't talk to this guy, don't talk to this guy. And that guy wrote the book and he he definitely covered a wide period. He is a little loose and fast with a few facts, but Overall, I think it's a good overview book of the whole thing, but what his book was missing was the the reality of being out on the road. So I wrote my book, and I spoke to every single person. Then I called Ryan last, knowing that he would he would say no because he doesn't want to be a part of anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, so Ryan has nothing to be afraid of, but the truth is – I, this book is just as much about me as it is about him. It's my story too, and you know, he uh, he he doesn't get to tell me that it's cool for me to do it, and then I work three years on it, and then he's going to be he's going to whine about it, right? And the truth is, he's not really publicly. What he's doing is he's not saying anything about it because. Right. If he says anything about it, the book will sell. And the reality is I'm donating all the money from the book to a charity in Raleigh anyway. So uh, what, char- what charity, by the way? So that way people know. Uh, Interact. It's a, uh, it's a women's uh, and family uh, domestic violence shelter in, in downtown Raleigh. That it's is the only, it's fucking the only awesome. one in Wake County. That is amazing, dude. That is so cool. That's very commendable. I didn't even realize that. No, I just decided to do that quite recently. And the rea- the reality is what made me think about that is because, you know, I lived in Raleigh for 18 years. That's where this story came from. It's where the book came from. My daughter was born there. I lived there. I have a lot of friends there. So if I'm going to take the money from the book and send it somewhere, I'd rather send it back to Raleigh because that's where it all came from in the first place. So, did you actually self-publish the book? Did you shop no, the book around? Lord, no, uh, Lord, no. I have a literary agent, and I spent a year acquiring a book deal. Okay, that's fantastic. Because the reason why I was asking was because I purchased it via Kindle. Because I'm, I'm yeah. one of the, I'm, I. It's so funny. Like I'm an old school musician, but like when it comes to books and stuff, I don't have the my ADD. I just don't have the patience to keep up with organizing them so it's like a kindle right. is like oh my god it's perfect all my books are in one thing <laughs> you right. know what i mean so but um but when you were shopping the book around um was was, was it a hard sell or was it something that no, people well, were it's always a hard i think it's always a hard sell when you're a uh well, you know, I've never written a book before. Now, I did the book with I, a co-writer named Joe A. Strike, who had written three books before. Mm-hmm. He wrote an amazing book about his band Watershed called Hitless Wonder that I would highly recommend. And if you love this book, you'll love that book. But, I remember um, Watershed, actually. Yeah, they were like a super – one of my favorite bands. They're as cheap trick as any band could ever be. Yeah, wow, that's so, awesome. Yeah, they were super great. They were, again, another one of those 90s bands that got signed and put one record out and it flopped and they got dropped. And then, of course, <clears> they <throat> continued to make way better records after that. But, um, you know, so it, uh, yes, the process of, the process of, the process of acquiring a book deal and writing a book is a long one. And what I really learned in that process is, for a book to be great, the right person, the correct person has to write it. Right, right. And and the truth is, you know, I, I did not do this because I'm going to make a fortune off of it. In fact, I'm going to make nothing off of it. But 
I don't, and I hope I raise some money for the charity, but the reality is, this is, an, to me, this is an important story. It's the beginning, the beginning years of a very important artist who will be around for another 20 or 30 years till he mm-hmm. gets old. And, you know, it's not negative. It's the truth. It's the story of a young genius and those of us trying to help him out. And, uh, you know, he can talk shit about the book if he wants, but I'm sure secretly he's happy about it. I mean, I think one of the things I loved about it was that it was what I'm always pretty weary about biography books or or or, or books written from someone like, 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 you know, like I was the manager of this band and I'm writing this book, you know, da da da. like I read Rock Scully's book, who was the tour manager for the Grateful Dead. And of course, I'm reading it. And I'm like, this is a great book and all. But I'm like, dude, you did as much acid as the dead. How can I fucking believe you? <laughs> You know right, what I mean? Exactly. But what I loved about the book was that it I did learn a lot about you in in the sense that it wasn't overly and and I don't mean that in a selfish way, but like it intrigued me enough about you that I wanted to talk to you. Do you know what right. I mean? Because Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's the same. It's the story. It really one of the one of the Whiskey Town members read the book and he told me he loved it and I've almost got all you know, I've got almost nearly universal praise for it. I mean, everyone seems to love that. They seem to love the book, and they seem to read it very quickly. Are the two main things. Mm-hmm. But one of the Whiskey Town guys, who band members, Chris Laney, who is the bass player in the RV tour, he said to me, "This book is about you and Ryan." Right. Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense," you know. But you know, it's just, it's the truth. It's what happened. My memory. Listen, I remembered pie. I'm 54 years old. I remembered, I memorized pie to 17 places when I was in third grade, like 47 years ago, I could drink 15 Heineken's tonight. And on the 15th one, you could say, Hey, what is pie? And I could go 3.14159265358979966. That is from third grade. (laughs) <laughs> my memory is pretty fucking good i don't mean to say that sound arrogant i'm just telling the truth i remember everything i remember dates i remember i don't remember what time what day the trash goes out at my house but i remember <laughs> i saw journey october 20th 1981 on the escape tour i remember that oh, great year by the way to see that yeah <laughs> yeah it was good it was a couple weeks after the houston video yeah so I remember all this shit, and mm-hmm. and the truth is, I just wanted to write it down and and document it before I got to be too old, and maybe my memory shits out on me. I don't know. I think that's a great thing because I'm I'm kind of I'm doing the same thing. I just finished a book, uh, which is just a collection of essays that I've written over the years of starting out from when I first got into heavy metal music in 1984 to how I ended up being a you know, a writer and whatever, you know, and the main thing was, again, the same reason was like, you know, I want to get these stories out. I'm 44 and I don't think I'm old, but these stories are getting a little harder to recount. And so my thought is like, you know, you, you know, sometimes the names are a little hazy and sometimes the details are a little fuzzy. And I'm like, you know what? This is the time for me to document all this. Well, and, I mean, people's memories are different. You know, there was a guy I did an interview in uh, Houston a couple weeks ago. And the guy asked me a question that I thought was really amazing. He said, what was the biggest surprise 
from you speak because I spoke to every other person. You know, I spoke to every band member's contact mm-hmm. with every band member, every bus driver, every crew member, everyone. Everyone that was a part of this, I spoke to every, that are alive. A couple, one of the managers passed away. Mm-hmm. And he said, what was the biggest surprise from talking to all those people? And I said, I was like, wow, that's such a good question. And my answer was how little they all remembered. Mm. And the truth is that if I had written this book without speaking to anyone that was in this band, the book still would have been about 98, 97 to 98% of what it is. Right. Because I, I got on the phone with these people and I said, well, remember the time we blah, 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 blah. And they're like, dude, I can't believe you remember that. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> like these people just hardly remembered anything. And there were just a couple little pieces that these people added to it, but it was, it really was a teeny percentage of the entire book was, was, was added for me talking to all those people. And I was happy to catch up with all of them. And I'm, I would say half of them are probably in my iPhone, you know, and two thirds of three quarters of them are probably Facebook friends with me. But so it wasn't hard for me to track everybody down, but, uh, they really didn't add much to it, unfortunately, because they really hardly remembered any of it. It yeah. was twenty. It was twenty one, twenty two years ago. Yeah, and it's it's funny because you you know one of the things I also loved about the book was that you had it's it's almost seemed like you had the foresight and the responsibility to kind of maintain some sort some form of a. Um, a sober mentality, you know. I mean, I'm sure you had your right. you're fine, but at the same time, like it, it was a very sobering read for me, if that makes sense. Because, like I said, the right. difference between reading like your book, say like Rock Scully's book, where Rock Scully was just like, "Oh man, me and Garcia ate like three times acid," and I just I think I remember him doing <laughs> this, you right know. Now. Whereas, yeah, like, mine. you were like. Ryan and I were sitting in a Waffle House and he told me this, you know what I right. mean? And to me, that was what made this book so special for me because, again, you know, I don't, I mean, I consider myself a huge fan. I can, I'm a mega fan of all my bands that I love. You know, when I love a band, I want everything. I want the bootlegs, I want the books, I want everything. And so getting to read this book was really an eye opening experience for me into his world because. You know, what, where I feel like it was very easy to write him off as, you know, being a brat and being, you know, whatever. It's like, you know what? He kind of was a brat. He kind of was like a, a punk. And he, you know, he, he kind of had this identity crisis at times of like what he wanted out of his position in music, you know? And it seemed like that he never really achieved that, you know? Well, I mean, the the one thing that I would always remember is that, or I would always consider, is that uh, in his defense, a substantial amount of time that he was a fucking brat, right? Like when he, <laughs> a lot of the time in his defense, an awful lot of the time, he was mad about the situation because whatever situation we were in violated his punk rock slash indie rock sensibility. For example, when Whiskey Town played the sports bar, he was angry 
because he didn't think that they should be playing a sports bar. You see what I mean? So even right. though his his actions were at times very bratty and annoying at times, a substantial amount of the time his actions were rooted in a place where he was trying to protect their credibility and all of that kind of thing so so really even though he when he got pissed and destroyed the show that was a bratty asshole thing to do or whatever but he was doing it because for really kind of the right reason you know the integrity really, of the music and the integrity, the integrity of, of the, the music you know they yeah. shouldn't he's right they shouldn't have been playing a sports bar Right. I mean, it's funny because I've, I've experienced that firsthand with my band is that, you know, we play, you know, you know, we don't tour, but we play, you know, we play all original material and we're used to playing at this place in Atlanta called Red Light Cafe where people come in. We have a good following. They people sit and, ch- and, and like watch us play and they pay attention. But then we would play this other place that well, I will remain unnamed, and you know they paid us really good, but basically we were the background music to like whatever was on the TV, and right. like you know sometimes as an artist, as a musician, as someone who writes music and who not just writes music but writes very prolifically and like and like personally, like it kind of kills a part of you inside, you know, when, when, oh, when course. you're, when you're yeah. looking out from the stage or from the corner of a room and there's a bunch of people at a bar staring at a TV and you're singing about something that's very rooted deep inside of you, you know? So oh, of course, yeah. but of course 100%. I know ne- I never, I never bratted out and trashed the show. I just went through it because I wanted to collect the 350 bucks for my band. <laughs> My band, well, I, mean, I know bands that <laughs> I know bands that will remain nameless that will play a show like that for a corporate event for you know three hundred thousand dollars, and right. they will, and it's sort of soul robbing, and yet they do it because for the same reason you did. It's just there's more zeros. Yeah, they're doing it to take the money because. That's how they pay their bills, you know. Look, it's how it's how it's how it's how we recorded our 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 recent album, and it's how we were actually, which is funny to bring this back full circle. We're we're able to have Caitlin Carey as a guest on our album. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, that's awesome. You know, because um, well, I mean, I think that I mean the whole thing kind of turned out the way I expected it to. You know, right? I if if. I listen. I have the the other thing about this book. I think that's very important is I have zero axe to grind with Ryan. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like my life turned out great. I'm not complaining. I have done very well in life. I am happily married. I have a daughter. My niece lives with us. I live in Nashville. I, everything is really good. I'm, I work for one of my favorite bands currently. Uh, I have no. You know, I didn't get fired from Whiskey Town. Whiskey Town ceased to exist. We all got laid off. You know what I mean? The company just folded. (laughs) The company folded, right? (laughs) And I went, I stopped working with Whiskey Town and tour managed train for 13 years, you know, and made a pile of money and did really well and traveled all over the world for 13 years with them. You know, my job being the tour manager with train in 2000 was probably more lucrative than Ryan's job being Ryan in 2000. Right. You know? So there's no sour grapes. I, 
the only my only one grievance with Ryan is I feel like he he really should have given Caitlin a nod and helped her out a little bit or had her sing on some songs with him or done something because she really did stick by him throughout this whole thing and I feel like he has not done anything to help her out in 15 years or 20 years and I, I that would be my only like I feel like he owes that to her, but he apparently he doesn't. I mean, he doesn't even play in North. He hasn't played a show in North Carolina in 13 years. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I, it was funny. It's like I remember, I think, God, let's see. So we've been here almost 10 years. Maybe it was like 10 or 11, maybe 12 years ago or something like that. There was like a false kind of start, like pseudo whiskey town reunion where him no, and Caitlin think, did like a do like a set together at Slims or something play, I'm talking yeah, about well, that and they played the last time Ryan played in North Carolina was in Raleigh in 2005 he played the uh performing arts center whatever that big place is in downtown right and that not, I think Caitlin did a couple songs with him and then maybe afterwards they went and played at Slims that's what it was I, I wasn't in t- I was out of town that day I didn't see it and but, I just remember uh, the big news was like, oh, my God, it's a Whiskey Town reunion. And then, like, all of a sudden, Ryan just went, like, radio silent, like, wouldn't even talk about it. <laughs> no, he's not going to do that. He's, yeah. The thing about Ryan is that he is not – he he never looks back. He's always looking forward. Every album cycle, at the end of the album cycle, he's like, this band sucks. I'm going to go make a better record. Because he's a constant – you know, his songs are just landing in his head constantly, and he has to – continue to write and continue to churn out records one after another after another so that's what he's going to do you know yeah. i'm not i'm not so again i'm not surprised in any way how his career turned out because it is what i expect now granted maybe i didn't expect that it would take 20 years for it to slow boil into what it is now mm-hmm. but but he definitely his career turned out the way i expected it to well, so before we close out, I want to talk a little more about you in the sense that you, like you said, you've you basically went from <laughs> managing Whiskey Town to like you did Train, you did. Uh, you're currently working with Weezer. Um, yes, that's correct. And uh, I mean, so did you? What did you take from your experience with Whiskey Town? going into a band like working with train who um i've had the pleasure of meeting long many years ago and they were like the, the nicest guys on the planet and, and that you know from what i met them you know um but like what did you take away from the whiskey town experience when you went into these other artists as a management pa- probably patience maybe <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I, I think uh, thankfulness, appreciation for their their punctuality. You know, there's a story in the book where uh, when I first started with Train, our lobby call was like 5.30 in the morning, and I came down at like 5.32, <laughs> and they were all sitting there waiting for me, looking at their watches like, they, where have you been? They beat you there. <laughs> right. Like, I'm like, who are these people? I mean, the jammer, uh, Jimmy Stafford, the bald-headed guy, and yeah. the guitar player, I honestly don't think he was late one time in the 13 years I worked with them. Mm-hmm. I really don't think he was. I can't, and I would remember that. So, I mean, I appreciate, you know, the thing is with train, with my relationship with train was 
it certainly at the time was not my music. They were very hippie. I thought they were a little bit hippie dippy, a yeah. little roots rocky, a little, you know, that kind of thing. And I didn't, and I certainly was, you know, a dude that loved rock and roll and punk rock and the Ramones and Kiss and Cheap Trick and the Darkness and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, right. Um, and Weezer. But um, the truth is, those guys were very are still this day very very good at what they do the singer is just a world-class singer and a world-class you know sort of a workaholic and they were very determined and and their that their, their determination was was um was you know you would really uh it was inspiring, you know, mm-hmm. so even though, and they were very good at what they did that for those first records, I think all the records I did with train, I think they're all great records. It's not, I don't ride around in my car and listen to it, but I appreciate it and understand what it is. And we worked, we worked very hard and we made that band sell a shitload of records and then a, a couple records stiffed. And we worked even harder in 2009 through 2011 to, take it from almost being over to building it all the way back up and making it bigger than it was. So, so I'm very, very proud of my, even though I don't work with them anymore and I quit in 2012, I'm very proud of my work I did with them. They're my brothers. I spent the last 10, you know, I spent 13 years with them. I have a Mm -hmm. tremendous amount of memories and I'm still friends with all of them. That's awesome. It's so funny because I actually saw Train. I've seen Train probably five times. I saw them twice on the first tour. Once was at Variety Playhouse with Angie Aparo back in right. Like and um and then I when I was living in Charlotte, I uh, or in Concord, I won a radio contest where I got to go meet them and hang out. And they were it was right after Drops of Jupiter came out and they played where Tremont, was that Tremont Music Hall yeah, with Five for Fighting and the yep, funny. I was there, I was there that night. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself like God. How many times did I cross paths with you at some point? You did point? that day for sure. <laughs> you yeah, know, so. you, you did that day 100% for sure. Thomas, this was a great chat, man. I really appreciate you talking to me and um, letting me get to know you more. And uh, uh, You're a great guy, man. I really enjoyed this. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, and I appreciate your questions. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll uh, – We'll raise some money for um, Interact in Raleigh and hopefully sell some books and we'll see how it goes. It should be great. But everybody, I think this book is, um, I mean, it's obviously a must for anyone who's a fan of Ryan or that that kind of music. But I think it's also it's also a great book for anybody that reads every rock bio because I think I feel like it stands up with all the other ones. I absolutely I absolutely agree. And 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 it's it's not Steven Tyler's book. No. Give it a hobbity doobity bobbity. Well, Thomas, thank I you. I met him once. He was nice. I'm not, I like Steve. Steven, if you're out there, I, I love Aerosmith rocks just as much as anybody. Oh, although man. Steven, but although, I mean, Steven Tyler's country record, he kind of deserves a punch in the stomach for that one. It's pretty terrible. <laughs> Let me tell you, rocks and get your wings are like two of yeah. two of like you know, two of like my go to the grave albums. But right. seriously, when they when he did that country record, I was like, Ugh. oh, why? Man? There's nothing worse. Like who does? You Brett know, Michaels. Because here, yeah, I don't even think Brett Michaels has more credibility to do that. That Stephen Tyler record, it sounds like Florida Georgia Line wrote a song. Or someone wrote a 
dumb song for Florida Georgia Line. They were sick that day and couldn't sing it. They said, oh, it's Steven Tyler's in town. Here's the lyrics. You just sing it. Because it's as fucking dumb as anything by Florida Georgia Line, which I think is one of the worst bands on the planet. If God said, you can kill them and I won't tell on you, I would probably do it. Like, they're the worst. It's actually funny. A friend of mine just uh, today on Facebook, we've been playing this game about um, if, if we could if we could take like if we could banish certain artists and people to an island that were full of landmines, who would it be? And we were like yeah. Pitbull, Kesha, you know, and all, <laughs> that they were one of them. <laughs> yeah, if you if you if you sent Florida Georgia Line somehow got rid of them, they'd put a statue of you in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> They're the worst. And I'm sure they're nice guys. One of them lives not far from me. But, oh, that music is just, it's its so bad that it's offensive. Oh, it's so, I mean, like, it's its very rare that, like, as a musician, because I'm a musician myself, you know, and you're a musician. And you know that being a musician, sometimes we have to just kind of say, you know, yeah, we have to just say, you know, its it's your thing. It's not really for me, yeah, so it's cool. Right. But man, then there's times with that where you're just like, man, that is like toilet water. That I mean, like, it's worse. It it's like- worse. Yeah, it's the worst. There's just I'm hard pressed to think of anything that it just offends me. I just can't. I can't. I if I sometimes I'll turn that station on in the car just to try to see if I can listen to it. And I just ugh. it's almost like being raped. You know, and I mean, it's just like, oh, like my wife, my wife said to me one time, why don't you work for some country band? Because see, in like I'm out with Weezer right now and we're gone for like five or six weeks. Right. In Nashville, when they tour, they go out of town on the weekends and you come home every Monday and you leave on Thursday and you come home on Monday, and you leave on Thursday, come home on Monday. So you're home every week. You're only gone on the weekends. And she goes, well, why don't you go work for one of those bands? I was like, because I would have to listen to that shit. <laughs> All day. You, All day, like 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 sound check the show. And, and the reality is, <laughs> I told her, I said, I'm not here. I wasn't put on earth to help that shit. I was. I'm here to stop that shit. I don't want to spend one moment of whatever my life is to help something. You know what? Working for Florida Georgia Line is like working at the dog pound putting down dogs like it sucks like your job sucks that is i mean like it, yeah yeah i i mean actually to be honest like i feel like that that would probably be the job that they would send you know how like whenever fast food employees are late they're the ones that have to go stand out on the street and hold the sign like right. that's that should be where they send all shitty tour managers and that like right. you know and like industry people it's like how do we punish them Six weeks on the road with Georgia, Florida, Georgia yeah. line. <laughs> like you're trying, you're not really doing God's work. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, not at all. I just, I would never spend a minute working for, I mean, I'm sure they're nice guys. I have mutual friends with them, whatever, but ugh, look, they're really, I, I say this all the time. I was like, you know what? I have I, I am friends with a lot of musicians who are in shitty bands. I'm friends with a lot of musicians who think my band sucks. It's totally fine. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like you don't have to like someone's band to like think that they're an okay person, but man, of course you not, know? right. <laughs> like, you know. You gotta draw the line somewhere. <laughs>
<laughs> well, Thomas, you've been a blast to talk to, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're very and, welcome. Uh, best of luck with the book and the, the charity. And um, Well, awesome. Well, man, it's been an honor to talk to you, and I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, too. All right, Thomas. I love it. Thanks a lot. Situation